We're going to look at Genesis chapter 43 this morning. Genesis chapter 43. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up um, to that chapter. You're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew racks, and the passage is also printed for you in the worship guide, so you're welcome to follow along there as well. Genesis chapter 43, we'll look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 34. Real quick recap of last week, especially for those of you who might not have been with us. Uh, We continue to see the ongoing conflict between Joseph and his brothers, we go back to Genesis chapter 37, uh, this is where the conflict emerged. The conflict emerged because we're told very early on in chapter 37 that Joseph was favored of his 12 brothers. He was favored most by his father, Jacob, to the point that his brothers resented him and despised him for it. And so what they did was they considered killing him at first, it gives you an idea of their, their hatred for him. Uh, But they thought better of that, and instead, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And so here you have Joseph, now in Egypt, and he goes through trials of his own. I'm not going to take the time to review all of those that we've seen um, so far. But he goes through trials of his own, learning uh, by incredible uh, reality and experience that God is with him through it all. And he ends up at a place in Egypt where he is basically acting as governor. You see, what had happened was uh, he, uh, Pharaoh, uh, the king basically of Egypt, had had uh, dreams. And Joseph was able to interpret those dreams for him, told him that the meaning of those dreams was that uh, a a time of plenty was going to be followed by a severe famine. And he said that my advice is that we store up as much grain, food as we can now, So that when the famine comes, people will flock to us for food, even from the surrounding region. And so Pharaoh is so impressed by this, he makes Joseph governor and basically the overseer of this food program, if you will. Last week, we encounter Joseph's brothers who go to Egypt. Why? Because we're now in the severe famine and they need food. And so there's this incredible moment where they are in the presence of Joseph. They can't recognize him. But he knows it's them. This is 20 years after they had sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph ends up taking Simeon, um, basically arresting him, if you will, and telling the other brothers that when they return to bring back the the other brother, Benjamin, because he wasn't with them. And so we left off last week with the brothers returning uh, to their home and telling their father, Jacob, about all that had happened in their interactions with this man that they still don't know is their brother. So, let me, uh, let's pick up with Genesis chapter 43 and let me read for us. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the, gra- the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a, a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that is Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? 
They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your, older, your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And by the way, I forgot to mention that Joseph had um, made sure that the money was put back in their sacks, and they still at this point don't know that it was him who had done that. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and we had given their donkeys fodder. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat 
with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Let's pray to God to be with us. God, we do pray that you would be with us. We trust that your spirit is here in our midst, working among us. Your spirit wants to point us to Jesus. So that's our prayer this morning as we enter into your word, Father. Point us to Jesus. Expose our sin and our brokenness. And I pray that you would cause us to receive the mercy and kindness that you offer to us through Christ. We pray that you would do this, that you would reach us wherever we find ourselves this morning, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Margaret Feinberg writes this, Kindness is disarming, especially when delivered in unexpected moments. Kindness has the ability to change our attitudes and responses, transforming the way we interact with others in the world. Something about the nature of kindness pierces the soul, accentuating our own humanity and reminding us that we, too, can be kind. So the theme of this morning's sermon has to do with kindness. And I think that Margaret Feinberg's quote is a helpful place for us to begin, especially the first words of that quote, kindness is disarming, especially when delivered in unexpected moments. As you think about kindness in your own life, where does your mind go? Maybe it goes to a time in this past week when you received kindness, maybe to a time when you extended kindness and that felt good, or maybe it goes to a dramatic moment in your life, um, whether it was years ago or whatever, whenever it may have been, in which you would say, that was a moment in which I experienced deep kindness. But kindness is also funny, because kindness can be hard to receive. Why do I say that? Basically, I say that because our hearts can be very hard. And kindness sometimes is not what we desire, because What we prefer, especially in light of our inner brokenness that we're going to talk about and explore throughout this sermon, in light of our inner brokenness, our go-to, our default position is to try to heal that and to make it right according to our own strength and according to our own ideas and according to our own measures. Basically, We encounter brokenness in our lives, and for those of us especially who um, consider God to be the most important reality of our lives, what we sometimes do is say, all right, I I have to work this brokenness off. I have to atone for the sin. I have to try to earn God's favor and his kindness. That's our go-to, so we need to be aware of that. That's our default way of relating to God because it's our default way of um, living life. What we get is we earn what we get, right? And so for that reason, kindness can be really, really hard for us to receive because kindness makes us vulnerable. And what we learn from this passage is that God desires to bring shalom to the broken areas of our lives through kindness. God desires to bring shalom to the broken areas of our lives through kindness. 
Shalom is that uh, well-used word in the Old Testament, and we're going to encounter it three times in this passage. It's a word that refers to well-being, to flourishing and thriving, God's intent for humanity. So when we say that God desires to bring shalom, that's what we mean. God desires to bring wholeness. God desires to bring well-being to the broken areas of our lives through kindness which again, places us in a position of vulnerability in order to receive this kindness. So what I want to do um, as we explore this theme of God bringing shalom to the broken areas of our lives through kindness is I want to explore it through two different lenses. The first lens that we're going to look through is the lens of the famine that we find in verses 1 through 14. And then we're going to look at our theme through the lens of the feast in verses 15 and 34. So there's a famine... And there's a feast going on in our chapter. Let's begin with the famine. Right off the bat, we're told in verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. We are well entrenched into the famine at this point. The famine has taken hold. It's been going on. Uh, We saw in the last chapter that uh, Jacob's sons had already visited Egypt once for food. They've returned home, and now they've reached the point, time has gone by, in which they need more food. So they're feeling the effects of this famine. You know, it's hard for us to relate to this because we don't, we've never experienced famine in our land here. But try as best as you can to place yourself into their story, to imagine what is going through their hearts and their minds, the the struggle that this is. Um, You know, food is a very basic necessity. And we're just so accustomed to always having it available. Uh, You know, whenever we get hungry, uh, we can eat. The food is there before us. So imagine a scenario in which that is not the reality, in in which you are, the hunger is actually causing pain inside of you. Or if you're not at that point, you look at your storage of food and you think to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, it's starting to get low. What am I going to do? Where do I go? So the passage, the chapter begins with um, reminding us of the severity of this famine and with Jacob, the father, telling his brothers, his sons, to return to Egypt to get more food. However, there's a problem. Like we said, uh, the brothers, the sons, had already gone to Egypt once. And you heard in my recap what had gone on there, and you heard it even um, come out a little bit in as they were recapping it to their father, that when they went to Egypt in the previous chapter, um, what had happened was Joseph recognized them. And we talked about how we raised the question, okay, in chapter 42, is Joseph being mean? Is he being harsh toward his brothers? Is he testing them? What's going on? And it's hard to know for sure. There, There very well could be a little bit of harshness coming from Joseph, that would be understandable to an extent, right? I mean, these are the guys who were going to kill him, but instead sold him into slavery. And all the hardship that he had gone through up to this point was because of what they had done to him. So it would make sense. It would be understandable, um, despite even how close he is to God, that he would be struggling with these feelings of anger and bitterness, right? We definitely see a lot of emotion from him. Once in chapter 42 and once in this chapter, uh, he has to leave the scene momentarily in order to weep, in order to express his emotion. 
So Joseph is feeling all of these things, and he, express, he, he has some harsh words toward his brother, but probably more so than him just wanting to be mean is him being cautious and testing them. Because the last time he saw them, the last interaction he had with them, they sold him into slavery. And so what Joseph did was, in the end, is he kept Simeon, one of the, the brothers, with him and told them to go back. And when they came back for more food, he, they would, he would release Simeon if they brought back Benjamin. Uh, Joseph had a special affection for Benjamin. He wanted to know that Benjamin was okay. And so this is the struggle here going on early in our chapter. Jacob tells his sons, we need more food, go back to Egypt. But they say to him, Father, it's not going to work that easy. You weren't with us, but here's what he told us. We cannot go back there without Benjamin. And it gets to the point where Judah himself says, I mean, this is pretty bold to his father. All right, here's the deal, dad. Uh, You give us Benjamin and we go. If not, we're not going. So there's this ultimatum that, that he gives to his father. And his father breaks at that point. His father, you know, we have to understand that he is experiencing and has been experiencing all kinds of emotion for 20 years. He doesn't know that his sons sold his Joseph, his other son, into slavery. He doesn't know what happened. They, they told him that he was uh, eaten by wild animals, and so he just thinks it was a tragedy, but he's heartbroken because he lost his son. And now he's missing another one of his sons, Simeon, because Simeon remains with Joseph, and obviously Jacob doesn't even know uh, that, that Joseph is there in Egypt. He thinks Joseph is dead. And so he's now thinking, all right, and, and we, we saw this in last week's chapter, in chapter 42, that he now favors Benjamin. And we talked about how, man, Jacob just doesn't seem to be learning his lessons. All these fi- family dynamics going back to chapter 37 originated because he favored Joseph. You would think that um, the way that, that those dynamics played out in the family, he would realize, all right, I got to stop favoring one of my sons over another but he still is doing it. He's favoring Benjamin. And so his thought process is, all right, if I release Benjamin, I I just can't bear to consider the possibility of losing another son. But Judah gives him this ultimatum. He says that, look, there's going to be no going to get food unless Benjamin comes with us. And it gets to the point that Judah says something really remarkable. Uh, In verse 8, he says, or or verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Now, Judah's uh, words here stand out especially because in contrast to the words of Reuben that came previously before this chapter. See, Reuben uh, had said, all right, here's the, here, here's the thing, Dad. Uh, I will, if we go back and, you know, something bad happens, um, we, I'll, I'll, I'll kill two of my sons. But Judah here is speaking of himself. So this is self-sacrifice. Judah's saying, all right, if we, I pledge myself to my brother. If something happens to Benjamin, it's my life. That's the payment. This is incredible. It's especially incredible when we consider who Judah at least has been. Judah has been a man uh, of hard-heartedness. 
We see him commit in chapter 38 um, uh, incredibly wicked sin. And so Judah is not a man of noble character up to this point. He's not a man of integrity. He's not a man of heroic acts. But something is changing in this family. And that's the, the, the big thing that I want us to see. The hard-heartedness is beginning to unravel. God, by his grace and his kindness, is starting to make his way in to the, lives, uh, to the life of this family. What we have here is a broken family. That's what it is, a broken family. And there is so much fault to go around. The, the, each of the brothers we could find fault in, we can find fault in the brother who, or the father who would obviously carry a large blame because um, he is the head of the household. And so much of this is because of the dynamics that he has created through favoritism. And at different times, we have saw his unwillingness. He's been passive. He's been unwilling to take the lead and to do what is right and noble. This is a broken family, a family functioning, not functioning in the way that God designed. And then as we break it down individually, we have a number of individuals who are not functioning in the way that God designed. Jacob's prayer in verse 14, look at that. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the men, the man, and may he send you back, may, may, send, may, may he send back your older brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved, of my children, I am bereaved. There seems to be a slight turning point going on with Jacob now. Suddenly, he brings God into the picture. God Almighty, may God Almighty be with you as you go on this journey. For the first time in a while, he's, you know, even if you're skeptical, maybe, maybe your perspective is, all right, well, he realizes that there's no way forward. The only way they're going to get food is if he says, okay, you can take Benjamin with you. But even in the smallest of ways, there seems to be a turning point. He is, even if it's desperation driving him to it, whatever. That's sometimes what happens in our lives. Desperation drives us to remember, oh yeah, God. You know what that's like? You know, you're, you're, you're mindlessly going on in your busy life without regard to God. And then it's circumstances in your life drive you to a point of desperation. And you think, oh yeah, God. So that could be what's going on with Jacob. May God Almighty be with you. Essentially, may he protect you. May he go before you. So the famine here is the backdrop for this feast that we're about to look at. But again, before we turn to look at the, the, the feast, I want you to consider again what God is doing. This is a, a, a remarkable thing that God has doing. And he's not doing it instantaneously. We've, we've seen his guiding hand at work through these chapters. Uh, we, we talked about this last week, that moment of irony when the brothers are before Joseph. They don't know it's him, but there he is in their presence. And he is breaking them down, basically, through his um, through his actions, through his words, and through even his kindness. Last week's sermon, the theme was severe mercy. Through the severe mercy of God, he is breaking the hard-heartedness of these men. Is that where you find yourself in this season of your life? Do you feel like things are unraveling 
And even though you can't see it clearly, you can say that I think this is a good thing. I'm not sure exactly where this is going. This is really hard and difficult, but I feel like some layers are being pulled back. I feel like they're being ripped open, and God is wanting to penetrate to the deep inner recesses of my heart, that place that we don't want anywhere, anyone to go. That's where God wants to go. Because God wants to bring shalom there. You see, our problem so often is that we want to settle for superficial redemption. We want to settle for superficial redemption. We're okay with like playing around with God on the edges. We're okay with God working on us here and there. But the way we live our lives so often, the way we live in isolation, the way that we refuse to be vulnerable and transparent, the way that we refuse to repent of deep sin, is basically communicating that we don't want shalom in the deep inner recesses of our heart. But God, by his stubborn mercy and kindness, goes there anyway. And he uses, oftentimes, hard circumstances to break us down and to peel back the layers. God's guiding hand is at work in the lives of these brothers. And God's guiding hand is at work in your life as well. As we follow with these brothers, they, don't, they, they can't see the whole picture. You know, we've talked about this a lot in Genesis. It's what makes faith and following God so hard, is that we're, you know, we are fixated in one scene of our lives. We can't see all of the scenes put together in the whole picture. And this is where Joseph's brothers find themselves, scene by scene, um, but God's guiding hand is present. And God's guiding hand is present in the scenes of our lives. Let's now look at this feast. Famine is the backdrop. You know, when when we get into the details of this feast, we can't forget that there is a severe famine going on in in the land. The contrast is what really communicates the power of the message of this passage. Shalom, that word that I've used uh, a few times already, is used three times in this chapter. Uh, twice in verse, 23, or in verse 23 once, and then in verse 27 twice. Look at verse 23. So at this point, the brothers have returned to Egypt, and they're scared. They're scared because it's that whole issue with the money being returned to their sacks. Um, when they left Egypt the first time, they thought they had paid for the food. But as they got onto their journey, the money was in their sacks. It had been put back in, and they thought they were being set up so that in the end, they would be accused of stealing. And so as they return, they're really nervous about this. They they think, all right, Joseph is going uh, going to imprison us. We're going to become slaves because we're going to be accused of stealing. And so before we look at verse 23, verse 20, there's this conversation between Joseph's steward. And they say, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Now, imagine the fear that they're experiencing in the moment, the uncertainty. They're they're making their best case, (laughs) and they're telling the truth. But is it going to be believed as the truth? Where is this going to go from here? 
And then these words are spoken to them. Verse 23, the steward replies, peace, that's shalom. That word there is shalom. Shalom to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now imagine the confusion. Wait, what? What? It was you? What's going on here? But even more, consider the power of the words that are spoken to him, to them. Shalom to you. Peace to you. In other words, may, may God's desire for well-being penetrate your inner life, even to the point of your most extensive brokenness. That's really the weight and power behind those words. May God's shalom penetrate you. Do not be afraid. You feel vulnerable. You feel like you're, you're, you're kind of out there naked, not knowing what your future holds. Do not be afraid. Shalom to you. And then he adds these words. Your God and the God of your father has essentially done this. Where did the steward learn to talk like that? Where did he learn that? I think the answer is plain and simple. Joseph. Throughout Joseph's journey, even in the darkest of situations, and I mean, they were dark situations, situations of uh, grave injustice committed uh, against Joseph, not once, not twice, but multiple times. You know, it's the kind of thing that you would, as you, you, you read this, or maybe um, you would hear a story like this from somebody in your life, you would say, that is not fair. God, what do you have against this person? But even in those dark moments, we were repeatedly told that God was with Joseph. And we see incredibly acts of faith or expressions of faith from Joseph in these moments. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Joseph is living out his faith in this role, in this power that he has. And we've talked about that from time to time. What do we do with the power and influence that we have in life? Because all of us in different capacities have power and influence. And it hasn't failed Since God has really been working on Joseph, we've seen numerous times in which Joseph has used his power for the good of others, not simply for his own benefit. And so we shouldn't be surprised that this steward, who would have known Joseph well, was around him, spending time with him. He had heard about Joseph's faith. He had seen Joseph's faith lived out. And so the steward himself says to the brothers, it was your God and the God of your brother who did this. Of course, He didn't say brother at that point. God's guiding hand at work, all for the intention of bringing shalom to the broken areas of life. What do I mean by the broken areas of life with these brothers? They've been hard-hearted. They've been jealous. They've been insecure. I mean, go back to selling their brother into slavery. Why would you do that? Because you felt incredible insecurity and jealousy. It was you wanted what Joseph had, which was the favor of the father. Now, again, the father should have never expressed that kind of favoritism among the brothers, but he did. And so the brothers wanted that. They desired that, and they, they were going to do whatever it took to get rid of that insecurity and jealousy, even if it meant killing their brother or, better yet, 
We don't want his blood on our hands. We'll just get rid of him and sell him into slavery. Hard-heartedness, insecurity. Can you relate to this? Maybe not to the level that you've considered murdering someone or selling them into slavery. But you can relate to this insecurity of the heart because this is what bred all of the actions of these brothers. What form is that insecurity and jealousy taking on in your life right now? What is it that you want that somebody else has? What is it that you believe that God owes you and you haven't received yet? It's in that place, that area, that God wants to bring his shalom. And for these brothers, the hard-heartedness begins to unravel like we've been talking about. Because in that moment especially, it's not the first time, this is a process, but this is a significant moment in this process when they receive, when they clearly understand that they are receiving kindness and mercy. Wait, you did this? You, the money, you gave us the money to keep, and you're not going to put us into jail? You're not going to make us slaves? And you're now speaking these words of shalom into our lives? Who are we to be worthy of this? That's the question that should be asked. So Joseph returns about noon, and what are they going to do? Joseph wants to have lunch together. This is crazy. These are the same people who sold him into slavery, who mistreated him, who were unjust toward him, that hated him and despised him, that were willing to kill him. And he says, let's feast together. This is surprising kindness. It's inexplicable mercy. And get this contrast that I think really drives it home. If you go back to that scene in chapter 37, when right before uh, the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, there's this painful scene, and we, we drew attention to it when we were in chapter 37, but there's this painful see, um, uh, scene where jo- they had thrown Joseph down into the pit, and they're waiting to figure out what to do. And it says that they were eating around him. feasting around him as their brother sat there without food and they were prepared to sell him into slavery. And then we have this scene, Joseph hosting a meal for his brothers. The same ones who had so callously sat down to eat while he languished in the pit, he is now offering a feast to them. Margaret Feinberg, who I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, also says this, it is one thing to show kindness to those who don't deserve it. But it is another thing to show kindness to those who are ungrateful or unkind. And I don't think that any of us would doubt the fact that Joseph's brothers were unkind to him. That would be putting it mildly. There's a a story that takes place during World War II. Maybe you're familiar with it. Probably some of you at least are. And it had to do with an overnight truce during World War II in Germany. Um, It was the Battle of the Bulge, and the Americans were kind of on the run, and three soldiers in particular um, got lost in the woods. That's where this particular battle was taking place. They were lost in the woods, lost their way from their unit, and so they come upon this small house in the woods. They have no other options, nowhere to go. One of the three was wounded, so they knock on the door. 
A woman named Elizabeth and her, I think, 11-year-old son, Fritz, were living there. They had retreated to this house in the woods because their house in the city had been bombed out. She's German. Here you have these American soldiers. There's a dilemma, right? She receives them in. Uh, She cares for them, and she tells them that she's going to prepare dinner for them. Now, that would be, I, I mean, I could end the story there, and you would say, wow, that's a cool illustration. I see how it fits with the passage, but it doesn't end well. A little while later, there's another knock on the door. Four German soldiers. Now, imagine being in her position. Uh, it was, you could have been put to death for uh, harboring, uh, keeping prisoners uh, of um, the enemy. But she tells them what's going on. And she says, you can come in, but you must disarm yourself. You must leave your weapons outside. And she requires the American soldiers who are already in the house to uh, place their weapons outside. So here they are in the house. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. Um, It's a true story. And here you have these American soldiers, these German soldiers, and Elizabeth and Fritz. I, I, I can't imagine the awkwardness that at least existed there early on. Like, what do we do from here? Well, here's what ended up happening. They feasted together. Elizabeth prepared this incredible feast for them, and they contributed whatever uh, supplies that they had to the meal. And for one night, there was a truce. And it was all, it all stemmed from Elizabeth's surprising kindness. The next morning, um, without any conflict, uh, each set of soldiers left and went their separate ways. This is surprising kindness on Joseph's behalf. And it so wonderfully and beautifully puts the gospel on display. Because at the heart of the gospel is the reality that we image bearers who are made for relationship with God have run away from that relationship with him. God, our greatest good, we've run away from him. And that running away from him has caused us to become so internally broken that there are times where we barely reflect the people that we were made to be. We've pushed God aside and acted like we can make it on our own. And the heart of the gospel is this, that God, rather than turning his back on us, comes to us. He pursues us. And he woos us back. He invites us back into relationship with himself. And it's not based on, now going back to the beginning of the sermon, It's not based on our ability to work off our our guilt over things that we've done. It's not based on our ability to earn God's favor. It's simply based on the kindness and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ, this is why in his earthly ministry, you see him, uh, Luke summarizes this well. In, In the Gospel of Luke, it's, you know, Jesus came eating. Like when you read the Gospel of Luke, it's like almost every scene, he's like eating with another group of people. Why is that? Because particularly in ancient culture, eating together was a sign of intimacy and friendship, of unity and oneness. And so it's really a demonstration of the God of the universe coming near to broken sinners who wanted nothing to do with him. This we get a glimpse of here in Genesis 43, through Joseph. Joseph shows surprising kindness. He welcomes his brothers who have 
done evil against him to the table for this feast. Now, they're, they're eating separate because of uh, Egyptian customs as it relates to the Hebrews. But hear this quote from Tim Chester. He said, food matters. Meals matter. Meals are full of significance. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we shared food is likely to be our friend. We're well on the way to becoming one. Our life at the table, no matter how mundane, is sacramental, a means through which we encounter the mystery of God. These brothers, in this moment, at the feast, consider the explosive kindness and mercy of God breaking into their internal lives. These brothers who are so undeserving, who are so wicked, who did whatever it took to get rid of their brother, here their brother is saying, feast, what is mine is yours. And so the passage ends with this great line, and they drank and were merry with him. It literally means they drank until they were content. It's what the Hebrew means. Nothing is being held back from them. There's also a little test going on with Benjamin. Benjamin's getting five-fold uh, the amount of food and drink. And I think the test, we're going to see this more as we move forward after this week. The test is, is that insecurity and jealousy still there? And we're going to find that something has changed. And what has changed is that God's surprising kindness has broken into their lives. And now they realize that there is nothing to be insecure about. There's nothing to be jealous about because in God's presence, because of his grace, they are welcomed. They are favored. And that is the only favor they need. And so I leave you with this. Romans 2.4 the Apostle Paul says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. This is the function of God's kindness in our lives. It's to get us to repent. But you see, the purpose of repentance is restoration. Because repentance is not just turning away from sin. It's turning away to God. It's turning to God and his grace and all of his benefits and all that he gives us. And so the purpose of, of repentance is restoration. So God's kindness leads us to repentance. Another way of thinking about this is that God's kindness leads us to experience deeper levels of shalom. Because as we repent of living our way and turn to walk in the ways of God, that is the pathway of shalom. That is the pathway of abundant life that Jesus offers to us. And so the invitation on offer to every single one of us this morning, whether you are already a Christian or not, is to come to the feast. Come to the banquet table of the gospel. You have all of the welcome and favor that you need because of what Jesus has done. In other words, you can stop striving to find favor and assurance, and welcome in life outside of God. Because in God, it is a gift. And his, his kindness is surprising. And that surprising kindness brings shalom, it explodes shalom into your heart, into every aspect of your life. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your loving kindness.
We give you praise for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you would expose our self-sufficiency. I pray that you would expose our sin and brokenness, not just for the sake of it, but so that we might turn from it and find life in Jesus. I pray that your grace, that your, your kindness would surprise and astonish us regularly. I pray that we would never grow overly familiar with it or too accustomed with it. Keep us astonished by your kindness. May we not lose sight of the power of the gospel in our own lives. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus you welcome us to the feast. And at your table, there is more than we could ever eat or drink. We thank you for doing this because we do not deserve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.